Here at Jubilee, we've been working on a sermon series on the book of Exodus, and we've come to Exodus chapter six, starting at verse 14. Genesis, Exodus, the second book of the Bible, chapter six, starting at verse 14. And as you open your Bibles, you'll see that this text, 16, uh, 14 through 27, is a genealogy. And this is the parts of scripture that we usually skip over when we're reading them, or we just try to get through them really quickly without making too much of an embarrassment of ourselves as we mispronounce all of the names. And as you can imagine, for a pastor with a little bit of dyslexia, there's a great temptation to skip over this text rather than preach it, but we are going to read and hear a sermon on it this morning. Exodus chapter six, starting at verse 14. These are the heads of their father's houses, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanach, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben. The sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shahol, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi, according to their generations, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, the years of the life of Levi being 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni, and Shimi, by their clans. The sons of Kohath, Amram, Izar, Hebron, and Uziel. And the years of the life of Kohath being 133 years. The sons of Mirari, Mali, and Mushi. These are the clans of the Levites according to their generations. Amram took as his wife Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses, the years of the life of Amram being 137 years. The sons of Izhar, Korah, Nepeg, and, Z- and Zikri. The sons of Uziel, Mishael, Elzaphan, and Sithri. Aaron took as his wife Elishaba, the daughter of Abinadab, and the sister of Nashon. She bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eliezer, and Ithmahar. The sons of Korah, Asir, Elkanah, and Abisaph, these are the clans of the Korites. Eliezer, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phinehas. These are the heads of the father's houses of the Levites by their clans. These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt, this Moses and this Aaron. So far, the reading of God's word. So brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, why is this text in the Bible? Why do we have this big, long list of names? Well, the ancient people of Israel were very interested in what family you came from. They were interested in genealogies, and that's actually true of every tight-knit community that shares an ethnicity. If you uh, were not born into a Canadian Reformed Church and you came to it from uh, somewhere else, you discovered that people sometimes play something called Dutch bingo, where they begin to try to figure out what family you belong to because many people in Canadian Reformed Churches share an ethnicity. And so this text really is an example of Jewish bingo. The text obviously is about Moses and about Aaron. In verse 14 it says, these are the heads of their father's houses, Moses and Aaron's father's houses. And then in verse 26 and in verse 27 it says, these are the Aaron and Moses whom you know, this Moses and this Aaron. So the the genealogy is about Moses and Aaron. It's a very selective genealogy. 
It skips lots of historical de details. It tries to give us the big picture of the genealogy of Aaron and Moses. It skips generations. If you were to compare it to other genealogies and other places in scripture, you see that there's generations, there's people that are skipped. The focus really is on Aaron as well, not so much as Moses, since we already know about Moses, Aaron's family is mentioned uh, more. And it's, it's a genealogy designed to give us this big picture and to demonstrate to the reader that Moses and Aaron were indeed Levites, and so they could be priests, and that they were worthy to be the leaders of God's people. That's the purpose of the genealogy, to show that they were priests, and that they are worthy to be God's leaders for the people. So we could stop there, and we could say amen, and now you know what the purpose of the genealogy is, and you could continue reading. But 2 Timothy 3 says that all scripture is breathed out by God, is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God might be complete and equipped for every good work. And then if you were to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, there the Apostle Paul says that the Old Testament events happened as examples for us. The Old Testament stories and people were written there for as examples for us that we would not repeat the same evil that they did. That we have in the Old Testament examples for us for our own instruction today. And so today I would like to pay some attention to this genealogy that we could easily skip over and preach to you the gospel of Jesus Christ from it under this title, it is a genealogy of grace. It's a genealogy of grace, and I'm gonna look at three things. We're gonna talk, look at this genealogy, we're gonna talk about the villains in it, and we're gonna talk about the heroes, and then we're gonna talk about the ordinary people. All right, a genealogy of grace. We're gonna see, look at the villains in the genealogy, the heroes, and the ordinary people. So first of villains, although the first one we're gonna look at is not so much a villain, maybe this is just sort of a, a skeleton in the ancestral closet of Moses and Aaron. And you see that in verse 20, maybe you picked it up as I read it, Amram took as his wife Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses. So Amram, Moses and Aaron's dad, married his own aunt. That's kinda weird, isn't it, boys and girls? that he married his own aunt. So if you start thinking about his family tree, that means that Amram's grandfather was also his father-in-law, and that his brother-in-law was also his dad, and that he was his own uncle. You can figure that out when you get home. Maybe that reminds you of that song, I'm my own grandpa. Later on in scripture, in the book of Leviticus, in chapter 18, we get laws from the Lord that uh, are laws which forbid this kind of thing. They forbid incest from happening. But this is before those laws came, and here we have, in the genealogy, out in plain view, one of the skeletons in Moses and Aaron's closet that their father married their aunt, uh, married his own aunt. So let's, that's a skeleton in the closet. Now we move more to the villains that are here. And we see that one in verse 21, for instance, that Moses and Aaron have a cousin, and his name is Korah. He's the son of their uncle, Izar. And interestingly, if you go to Numbers chapter 16, you read this. Now Korah, the son of Izar, that's Moses and Aaron's cousin, son of Kohath, son of Levi, and Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, the sons of Reuben, took men, and they rose up before Moses, and with a number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation, 
chosen from the assembly, well-known men. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, you have gone too far, for in all the, con- all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourself above the assemblies of the Lord? Korah, the cousin of Moses, leads a rebellion in the wilderness against Moses and against Aaron. He challenges their spiritual authority. He's not content with the place that God has given him. He wants more recognition. He wants to be one of the leaders. And so he challenges their authority and he gathers together 250 of the the men of Israel. And as you read that text in Numbers 16, they come before Moses and before the Lord and they're all carrying bronze censers. So a censer is sort of like, it's it's a bronze pot that they would put some some, uh, coal or something in there that could burn that you put incense on, the smoke comes out. And that's something that they would use in worship to the Lord in the tabernacle. So 250 men with their censers all come before Moses and Aaron saying, we should be the ones burning incense. We should be the ones leading the people of God. In Numbers 16, verse 11, Moses tells them that it is against the Lord that you are rebellion, not just against me and Aaron. It's against the Lord that you're rebellion. And then what happens is those men stand there with the censers, trying to claim leadership in Israel where God has not given it to them. The glory of the Lord appears and fire comes out and kills all of the 250 men. And then the earth opens up around Korah and his household and Korah sinks into the ground. The earth closes back up over him again and he disappears, he's dead. The judgment of the Lord comes upon them. And then what Moses does, he collects all those 250 bronze censers and he has uh, blacksmiths pound them into sheets of bronze and they use that as a covering on the altar in the tabernacle. So that when you come to offer on the tabernacle, when the priests come to offer on the tabernacle, they see the bronze plating made from the censers and they're reminded that, well, I can read it from number 16. It is to be a reminder to the people of Israel so that no outsider who is not of the descendants of Aaron should draw near to burn incense before the Lord lest he become like Korah and his company. Korah, the first villain in the genealogy of Moses and Aaron. And 2 Timothy 3 says that also this scripture is profitable for teaching and for admonishing. And 1 Corinthians 10 says also these things are given as examples to us so that we might not desire the evil that they did. So how does, what does that mean for us today then? Well, Christians and churches and Christian organizations often try to grasp for things that are bigger and for things that are better and try to have bigger and better and greater influence in their life, in their individual life or in the life of their church. And oftentimes it can seem that that's done out of pure motives. We wanna have more influence so that we can do greater things for the Lord. But this text is a warning to us. Beware of looking for more recognition. Beware of looking for more applause. Beware of seeking a title for yourself, getting respect. Beware of running after power and influence. Beware of jealously seeking what God in his providence has not given you at this time. Beware of jealously and bitterly grumbling about your situation because to do so would be to rebel against God himself. Instead, What you ought to do is to seek to be faithful 
right where God has placed you in this time. And then as the Lord tests you and as you show yourself to be faithful in small things and then perhaps in greater things, then you may wait and see if the Lord in his providence decides to lift you up to other places and positions. Beware of thinking also this, brothers and sisters, beware of thinking that you can offer sacrifice to God on the merits of your resume. God accepts the offering only of those whom he has anointed. He only accepts the offering of your life if you share in the anointing of Christ by grace through faith. And so we begin to see how this genealogy is also a genealogy of grace because in mentioning Korah and his rebellion, it points us toward true faith in Jesus Christ, the anointed one. Another villain in the genealogy, two of them, Nadab and Abihu. Nadab and Abihu. I can't think of those names without thinking of the Jamie Soul song about Nadab and Abihu. Nadab and Abihu are part of the, the select group of people who uh, had the opportunity to go up on the mountain, uh, up on Mount Sinai with Moses and see God. So if you look at Exodus 24, verse 9 through 11, we read this. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet as if a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of Israel. They beheld God, ate, and drank. Nadab and Abihu saw God. If you go to Exodus 19, it explains that God invited them up on a condition that they were to consecrate themselves beforehand. And then if you look at Exodus 29, it explains what it means for a priest to consecrate himself. They had to ritually clean themselves and they had to anoint themselves with oils and they had to put on new clothes and they had to take blood from the sin offering and they had to put it on their feet and on their hands and on their earlobes. They had to be covered in the blood of sacrifice in order to be consecrated to come before the Lord. Nadab and Abihu, who were very well instructed on how to appear before the Lord properly. However, we read in the book of Leviticus, chapter 10, the following. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. The word unauthorized there could also be, you could also say they offered strange fire. And the word there, could, you could use the word profane. Profane is, is a word that comes from Latin, and what it means is, is outside the temple. Fire, they used fire in their worship of God that was not consecrated. It wasn't, it wasn't done the way the Lord asked them to do. It was, it was fire from outside the normal consecration of the priests. They didn't take care to come before the Lord in a way that respected his commands and recognized his holiness. They didn't come before him in ritual purity. They had seen God. They had known all the instructions as to what they were to do how they were to consecrate themselves. It appears that they decided to innovate or just to take casually 
the coming before the Lord, and the Lord broke out against them, like he promised he would do, actually, in Exodus 19, where he tells them, come before, the, come before me, consecrate yourselves, or I will break out for, against you. Moses says this to Aaron about the death of his sons. He says, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. And it says, Aaron held his peace. He knew that Moses was right. He knew that his sons had done something wrong. And scripture says that this too is profitable for teaching and for admonition. And 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that these things happen as an example for us in the, New, in the New Testament. Brothers and sisters, don't think that you can come before the Lord without holiness. You cannot come before the Lord without holiness. You must be holy. Whereas Jesus himself, you must be perfect like your heavenly Father is perfect. And the way that you do that is that you don't come with, with the right fire in your bronze censer. And you don't come with new clothes or lamb's blood on your feet and your hands and your earlobes. The way that you appear before the holy God in holiness is to be covered from head to, two in the, head to toe in the blood of the lamb and the blood of Jesus Christ by grace through faith. You come before the Lord in holiness when you wear his perfect robes of righteousness by grace through faith. You come before the Lord in holiness when you come before him anointed as in sharing the anointing of Jesus Christ by grace through faith. And so this genealogy is a genealogy of grace because it's pointing us this morning to faith in Jesus Christ. Those are the villains in the genealogy. Now let's look at the heroes, or let's look at one of them. In Exodus 6, verse 25, we read that Eliezer, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phinehas. Phinehas. Phinehas, his, his name means black man. His mother was probably African. He was black. He's part of numerous black people that are mentioned in the Bible, numerous Africans. Numbers 12, verse 1, tells us that Moses' wife was black. We can think in the New Testament of the Ethiopian eunuch. You can think of Simon of Cyrene, who was from Libya in Mark 12. You can think of his son Rufus, which is mentioned in, in Romans 16 by Paul. Rufus, isn't that a good name? He was also a black man. You can think of uh, Simeon called Niger, in the, the New Testament, Niger means black. He was a black man. Lucius of Cyrene, they were prophets in Antioch, mentioned in Acts 13. So Phinehas, he's, he's a black man. He's a hero because of his zeal for the Lord. He's very zealous for the Lord. And Numbers 25 tells us the story of Phinehas. And if there was ever an R-rated story for sexual content and violence, it's Numbers 25. This is how the story goes. Israel's in the wilderness. The men are going and visiting Moabite prostitutes. And they're spending time with the Moabite prostitutes, and those Moabite prostitutes are not just sleeping with them, but they're bringing them to worship their god, Baal of Peor, and doing all kinds of strange things, including offering sacrifices to the dead. And if God, of course, is terribly upset with this, this disobedience on behalf of his covenant people, and he sends a plague to them, and so the plague begins to kill people in the, uh, in the camp. And then there is one man named Zimri. And Zimri couldn't care less what the Lord thinks of his behavior, and he couldn't care less that the Lord is sending a plague on. So what Zimri does 
is he takes a Moabite prostitute and he brings her into the camp. And in front of Moses, and in front of all the people who are weeping because of the plague that's going on, he brings the Moabite woman into his tent. Now, it might not even be his tent because there's commentators who look at that text, including Jewish commentators, and it seems that what he might have even done is brought her into the tabernacle, into one of the side rooms of the tabernacle to sleep with her, making the tabernacle a place of Moabite Baal prostitute worship. And Phinehas sees it. Phinehas is a, a doorkeeper. He's sort of one of the bouncers. Phinehas sees it and he's filled with zeal for the Lord. Numbers 25 verse 11 says that he was zealous, that he was jealous with the Lord's jealousy. And he goes into the tent where Zimri and the prostitute are and with one spear thrust, he spears both Zimri and the prostitute in the act of adultery. And because of his godly zeal, the jealousy of the, uh, for the jealousy of the Lord, it says that Phinehas turns aside the wrath of the Lord. He makes atonement for the people and the plague stops. And this is such a, a, a well-known song about the zeal of Phinehas' faith that later the psalmists make a psalm and they mention Phinehas in it as an example of faith. So let me read that, how it's written in the, the rhymed version of Psalm 106. By Baal Peor's lure misled, they ate from offerings for the dead and so provoked the Lord to anger. This is Psalm 106, verse 13. He saw their deeds, his wrath arose. He let a plague among them linger because the lifeless idols chose. Then Phinehas rose to intervene. The plague was stopped when God had seen how acting with determination he put an end to wickedness. Thus he for endless generations was credited with righteousness. We remember Phinehas for his zeal for the Lord. Numbers 31, we find out that Phinehas becomes a military commander against the Midianites. And when all the people have to stay for a whole generation in the desert so that a whole generation could die because of their disobedience and only the new generation can enter the promised land, we find out that in Joshua 22, Phinehas is one of the very few who is allowed to survive and enter the promised land. He sees it with his own eyes. And his descendants become the high priests of Israel. And all of scripture is profitable for teaching and admonition. And also this is written as an example to us. What is the lesson from this heroic, zealous, black believer, priest, military commander? Brothers and sisters, take a stand for what's right in your life. Take a stand, even if nobody else does. Be zealous for the holiness of the Lord. Be jealous with God's jealousy. Ephesians 6 says, put on the full armor of the Lord so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes like Phinehas did. Phinehas' name in this genealogy and the way that he's remembered in Psalm 106 challenges us today to have courage when biblical faith is under attack. To have the courage to call out idolatry when you see it. To have the courage to call out adultery when you see it, rather than shrug your shoulders or watch it as entertainment. To have the courage and zeal of Phinehas for the glory of God. And that's the grace of this genealogy. It points us to zealous faith in Christ. 
We've talked about the villains, talked about a hero, but here's the thing, not many of us are going to be notorious villains in life, and not many of us are gonna be celebrated heroes, are we? Most of us are just gonna be ordinary people. And so that's the last point. If you look at the names in the rest of this genealogy, you find that these names, well, they, they tell you a little bit about what their parents were like. You have the name Shaol, means prayers answered. Eliezer means God has helped. Elzaphan is God has treasured. Elkanah, God has created. Jochebed, God's glory. These were people that came from covenant homes. They were parents of ordinary, everyday people who were giving their kids names that showed that they were doing their best to trust the Lord in everyday life, in the lives of their family. Isn't that what we're asked to do as well? Just have faithful reliance on God in, in the ordinary, regular rhythms of life, one generation after the other. That's how the church progresses throughout history, ordinary people being ordinary, faithful believers. Most of us are very ordinary. We're just ordinary people. Most of us are the equivalent of the people named in this genealogy like Libni and Shimni, or Mali and Mushi. I think those are the best names. Mali and Mushi, Mali and Mushi, Mali and Mushi. They're fun to say. They're great names, but for all intents and purposes, these people have been forgotten. They're not really remembered outside this genealogy. They were just ordinary people. Libni means white. Maybe when he was born, he was an albino. Shimni means famous, although he's totally not. He only gets mentioned here. Mali means weak or sick. Maybe it was a weak or a sick baby when the parents named him. Mushi means sensitive. Maybe he was colicky and cried all the time when he was a kid. Palu is mentioned. His name means extraordinary, although we know absolutely nothing about him, so he didn't seem to be too extraordinary, just ordinary. Maybe his parents had really high expectations for him and he didn't live up to them. Or maybe he was extraordinary because he was kind of funny looking. Nepeg means clumsy. Maybe he was the one that tripped over his own feet, the kid that always spilt the milk every dinner time. The point is, is that in this long list of names, most of the people weren't villains, they weren't heroes, they were ordinary people with ordinary lives, like you and me. And I think that there's encouragement in that for us. We might not know Libni and Shimi, we might not know Mali and Mushi, but God knew them. God knew their names. And your life might be very ordinary. Your life might be, till the day you die, quite unremarkable. Perhaps even uninteresting to the world around you. But God knows who you are. And God knows your name. You might not be a Finahas. Maybe nobody's going to sing songs for you. Maybe you're the funny-looking, clumsy boy or girl who gets forgotten. Maybe you're the weak or sick person, the, the sensitive and totally not famous person. But God knows who you are. He sees you, and he knows your name. For most of us, nobody's gonna write a book about us. Nobody's gonna write history about us. History will forget us. 
But Isaiah 49 verse 16 says that God has written your names on the palms of his hands. And he knows you and he will never forget you. Luke 10 says that God has recorded your names in the book of life. I think that's more than enough for me. You compare this list of, of people to other pieces of scripture, such as Numbers chapter three, and you see that you, these people just had regular ordinary jobs as well. Numbers three, they, these people were Levites, and Numbers three it says that the descendants of Gershon were in charge of putting up and taking down and maintaining the cloth and leather curtains and coverings of the tabernacle with all of its cords. Basically, the descendants of Gershon were like those people that you go camping with that are really good at making the tarp over top of the campsite. They're really good at that. Those are the Gershonites. They're just ordinary people. Numbers 3.3 3 says that the descendants of Kohath were in charge of the furnishings and the utensils inside the tabernacle. They were kind of like interior decorating people. It says that the sons of Merari, they were responsible for the frames and the pillars and the bases set for setting up the structure of the tabernacle. You could say that they were the construction workers. They were the framers. Maybe they, they had some engineers on their team to make sure it didn't fall down. Some of the descendants of Korah, who ended up rebelling against Moses and Aaron, became known as the sons of Korah. They were the church musicians, the piano players, the violinists, the organists. I'm pretty sure they didn't have an organ in the tabernacle. They were people that wrote things like Psalm 84 verse 10, which says, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. A doorkeeper, somebody who stands by the door all day long, shaking hands and handing out bulletins. Sometimes when the priests had to retire at 50 years old, then they would become a doorkeeper, stand there all day, shake hands. Ordinary people with regular jobs in the Church of Christ. They were the ushers and the bulletin printers and the sound team. They're the people that open up the church and prepare the liturgy board. They're the ones that clean up when everybody's gone, the ones that man the nursery, the ones that clean toilets and vacuum carpet. They're the people that put out the sign by the road who crunch the numbers and prepare the budget. They're the ones on the manse committee or maintain the church social website Regular, everyday, ordinary believers trusting God doing regular, everyday, ordinary tasks in the church of God. You know, Moses and Aaron and Phinehas, they get the attention, right? They're the ones we remember. They're the great ones. They seem the most significant of all. But God's genealogy of grace teaches us that we're all called to ordinary significance. There's so much talk in our culture today about being extraordinary. I typed into my Google search, be extraordinary, and then I clicked on images, and you have all these images which say things like this, refuse to be an ordinary person trapped in an ordinary life. You are extraordinary, yes you are, if you ever got the chance to see yourself through someone else's eyes, you'd be surprised at how extraordinary you really are. You're not ordinary, you're extraordinary. You didn't wake up today to be anything less than extraordinary. Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I understand what, what people are trying to do. They're trying to encourage people to think well of themselves and I can appreciate that. But here's the problem, if everybody's extraordinary then nobody is. And in the long run, 
if you listen to that kind of rhetoric, it can make you feel like a failure because the reality is, is we're not all extraordinary. You're not all gonna be a Moses or an Aaron or a Phinehas as much as they are good models for our life. Most of us are gonna live rather regularly ordinary Malian mushy lives. We're gonna be normal everyday people putting one foot in front of another, trusting God as the doorkeepers and the snow shovelers and the homework doers and the toilet cleaners. In the face of all this, this be radical, be extraordinary talk of the world, which also creeps into the Church of Christ, Michael Horton writes the following. <clears throat> this is what I need now, he says. I need the courage to face an ordinary day, an afternoon with a colicky baby where I'm probably gonna snap at my two-year-old and get annoyed with my noisy neighbor. The courage to face an ordinary day without despair, the bravery it takes to believe that a small life is a meaningful life, and the grace to know that even when I've done nothing that is powerful or bold or even interesting, that the Lord notices me and is fond of me, and that is enough. The same, same goes true for our church here at Jubilee. You know, CBC's not gonna come through the door and do some piece on us about all the extraordinary things we do at Jubilee Church. We're not gonna do anything that has these big fireworks results with media coverage and, and you know, all these people in Ottawa are gonna pay attention to us. It's not gonna happen. Instead, we trust that our extraordinary God will keep using the ordinary means of grace, prayer, preaching of his word, the sacraments, through ordinary servants like you and I to nurture and, and guide us, to fill our lives like frail jars of clay with rich treasure of his extraordinary and amazing grace. We trust that God's gonna keep loving us through fellow very ordinary uh, image bearers and then send us out into everyday ordinary life to love each other and to love others in ordinary places with ordinary callings. And that's enough. And that's the grace of this genealogy. It points us beautifully to simple biblical faith in Christ. Verse 23 says this. Aaron took as his wife Elishaba, the daughter of Abinadab and the sister of Nashon. I bet you didn't have a clue before today that Aaron's father-in-law was Abinadab. He had a sister-in-law named Nishon, Nashon. You probably didn't know that, and you don't know who they were. They were just very ordinary people. They're very ordinary people that we would never remember if their names were not written down, especially if they had not been written down in Matthew chapter 1 which we read here, and Ram, the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab, the father of Nashon. And Matthew chapter one is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, which ends with, and Iliad, the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer, the father of Matan, and Matan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the mother of Mary, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Think about this, brothers and sisters. The most important work that the Lord was doing in the time of Moses and Aaron, it wasn't just stopping the villains 
and raising up the heroes, as important as that was. It was much more under the radar than that. It was much more unnoticed. It was bringing into the world Jesus Christ through ordinary, regular people like Abinadab and Nashon. And there's a lesson there for us as well. That at the end of the day, brothers and sisters, let's just let Jesus be the extraordinary one. Let's just let Jesus be extraordinary. Jesus, the great high priest who brings an end to the need for human high priests in the line of Aaron. Jesus, who the book of Hebrews says is greater than Moses. Jesus, who has more courage than Phinehas and who comes to atone once and for all for the sins of his people. Jesus, the ultimate hero who defeats the ultimate villain. Let's let Jesus be the extraordinary one because after all, he came to be extraordinary so that we could live ordinary Christian lives in his service. And so that's the grace of the genealogy of Exodus chapter six because it points us to Christ and it teaches us to give God the glory while we lead just faithful, ordinary lives. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching and reproof and correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God might be complete, equipped for every good work. And all God's people said, amen. Let's pray. Lord, Father in heaven, Lord, most of us are, are malis and mushis. Not many of us are wise by human standards. Not many are influential, not many are of noble birth, but you, God, chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and you chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong, and you chose the lowly things of this world, the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast except in you. So help us, Lord, to trust you today and be ordinary, everyday Mali and Mushis for Christ, right where you and your providence have placed us. Amen.